Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here at RAF Fairford, Royal Air Force Base, about 90 miles outside of London, that is home to the Royal International Air Tattoo, which is the world's leading gathering of military air power leaders, uh, executives from the companies that serve those leaders, as well as airplanes from around the world. It's a tremendous event to raise money for Royal Air Force Charities. Our coverage here is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, and we're honored to have with us retired uh, Royal Air Force Air Marshal Sir Christopher Harper, uh, who is Director General of the NATO International Military Staff, uh, as well as many, many other things, including Commanding Officer of 41, uh, the legendary 41 uh, Squadron. And we're in front of the Jaguar, which may have a vague connection, Chris may have, w- with that. Great, it was great uh, seeing you uh, and, and Jan. Um, but I want to start first with um, you recently authored uh, a report about the vital importance of uh, better air defenses in the Baltics. Right now we had a NATO summit, not a lot of mention or discussion. Uh, the lines covered everything from hybrid threats to cyber uh, to fundamental questions of unity, readiness improvements. Talk to us a little bit about the report you authored and what you see as some of the big challenges there at a time when Russia is undermining governments in sublime ways and malign ways, but also through very, very direct military threats, including overpowering rocket artillery that demands much better air defenses than anything that the alliance has, especially on that eastern front. Well, Vargo, particularly up in the Baltic region, the threat from Russia is considered to be existential. In that part of the world, it is their number one priority. It's not not the case around the whole alliance. In the south, there is a great concern about Islamic uh, terrorism, the migration flows, and other insecurity aspects. The older hands in NATO, Germany, the United Kingdom, the United States, perhaps take a, a slightly more global perspective of the risks that we face in a very, very uncertain and troubled world at the moment. But as I said, up in the Baltic region, the threat from Russia is really upfront and central. And I have to say that one of the critical capability shortfall areas in that part of the world is in air defense. As an alliance, we've put together very solid reassurance packages for the Baltic states, the Enhanced Forward Presence Initiative. The United States is heavily involved with its European Defense Initiative in funding capability up there. But at the moment, we can't really actively reinforce that part of the world because we cannot generate and maintain air superiority in the face of a very, very capable anti-access area denial system that Russia has put in place. So, a few months ago, we started a study through the International Center of Defense and Security, which is based in Tallinn, working with the three Baltic states to examine what we needed to do. I was asked to lead the writing of that study. Very privileged to be able to do that. And I have to say, I think what we've done is generate a meaningful report that shows what the states themselves have to do, together with their neighbors, in order to lay some important foundation stones to solve this shortfall. And in short, because it's a a long 30-odd page study, but in short, Connectivity needs to be solved. So in other words, where there is no redundancy in the moment, redundancy has to be generated. Where we have single 
control and reporting points, they've got to become control and reporting centers. They've got to be able to link back to the KOG at UDEM far more effectively than they do at the moment. Any gaps in sensor coverage have got to be filled. Very importantly, the really bright, capable youth that we have in the Baltic states has got to be exploited in a slightly different way. At the moment, they're mobilized to pick up arms and go to fixed positions on the ground. Some of these bright people have got to be fighter controllers uh, of the future, trained up to 4x4 level to be able to work in a, a hostile cyber environment in the air, um, air command and control world. And then, I think, if we've done that and demonstrated that the three Baltic states will work together to do that sort of thing, NATO will come to aid with the rest of the model. So it can be things like medium range or longer range surface to air missile systems that can plug in to that mechanism that we've now created. We can perhaps bring in fighter aircraft that will be able to practice air defense rather than the current air policing level. And so we're starting to tackle this from a local level and then building up with the rest of the Alliance. Um, you were one of the senior uh, uniformed officers in the Alliance. How do you respond to those who say that the establishment of, say, an air defense network uh, or, or a missile-based air defense network in the Baltics would be something that would be provocative uh, for Russia? There's always that concern about, you know, at what step uh, the Russians will take offense and use, use that as causes belli. Um, there's also this Russian narrative that's been created that any of these air defense systems are designed to neutralize uh, the Soviet, excuse me, the Russian strategic deterrent. Um, talk, talk to us a little bit about what's the right way politically to, to transmit this message that this is a defensive feature, not something that should be considered offensive or provocative. Well, self-evidently, actually, um, surface-to-air missile systems of the nature we are talking about here are defensive systems. And let us look at the picture from the other side, that anti-access anti -access area denial mechanism that I talked about that now stretches all the way from the northern Baltic coast down across NATO's eastern flank as far as Syria is incredibly capable. So to respond to that, if you like, and create a viable air defense mechanism in that part of the world, an integrated mechanism where a missile system and fighters can work seamlessly with each other, I think is not an unreasonable response. And it is a defensive response. So how it could ever be seen as an offensive posture, I don't really see. Um, you have a, a couple of NATO summits under your belt, uh, from from uh, junior level all the way up to senior level, and, and certainly there at 2014 at the Watershed Summit, the Newport Summit. Um, and you've always focused on uh, the the political structure of the alliance. At, you know that that the it's a political alliance that has tremendous military capabilities, but that unity is the core of it. Um, we just had a NATO summit in Brussels. Um, it was seen as as, as very disruptive. Uh, a view that the the president, or certainly the narrative now, is that the president was disruptive there, calling for four percent spending increases um, before the summit, challenging uh, once again, you know, saying. Uh, the talk about the obsolescence of the alliance, although it ended uh, on a somewhat positive note where the president said, you know, the United States would stand with its, with its NATO allies. From your perspective, what was successful that was done? What was potentially negative uh, from your standpoint? You know, what were, what, what were the good bits of it and what were the somewhat less than good bits of it? If I can use British understatement in that well, question. Vargo, your president at the moment 
does not have a particularly traditional approach to anything that he does around the world. So I don't think we should be surprised at some of the media reporting that surrounds the way he approached that summit. I was not in the room for this council. I'm now retired. I'm a former director general of the International Military Staff. But I was over there for the summit. I was uh, able to talk to Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, for a little bit in the margins. I would say there was a lot less tension present in the formal proceedings than the media might have you believe. The fact that all 29 uh, allies of the alliance got together and signed a very, very meaningful communique at the end of the summit, I think is a powerful message of um, cohesion indeed. In that communique, the undertaking to achieve 2% by 2024 was very, very strongly underlined again. But there are some really important and meaningful um, steps that are being taken through this communique as well. For example, the readiness of the alliance through the 30-30-30 initiatives. 30, 30 squadrons of combat air power that make noise like that, which is fabulous. There are 30 active battalions, 30 fighting vessels, all at 30 days' notice to move. Is a readiness posture the Alliance hasn't had for many a year. Now it's got to be implemented yet, but it's powerful and it's a, an indication of Alliance solidarity. And the new NATO command structure actually is right for the times. The cyber center that's going to be built in Belgium, the new maritime headquarters in Norfolk, Virginia, the fact that our joint force commands will become capable of commanding land centric operations. I think it's a good step forward and frankly the amount of work that will have gone into achieving consensus like that will be huge and it was not disrupted by the president, it was signed up to by the president. Um, the uh, Never let it be said that Chris Harper cannot be heard under any, any circumstance. Um, how do you respond to those who say that shows of disunity or disconnection, whether over the 4% statement, for example, which the president made, which Emmanuel Macron said was, was not agreed to by anybody in the alliance. That's true. There, there is this sense of disunity. Um, there's a trade war on that's transatlantic. Um, some of the comments made here, uh, the president made, he, he, there's, he, he said he didn't say them, but he did say them, and then every Brit I've talked to has expressed a certain degree of concern over some of those statements. Um, you know, how do you respond to those who say that any show of disunity by the alliance merely invites Vladimir Putin to further test the alliance, and that the concern is um, that there could be another test when Putin and Trump, when Putin and Trump meet in Helsinki in just a few days? You know, Jean-Paul Polomeros, uh, former uh, Supreme Allied Commander. Uh, 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 Supreme Allied Commander Transformation said, look, he said, what if Trump said, you know, says, hey, NATO, Russia should be part of NATO, for example, or does something disruptive, it could be potentially dangerous. How do you address that, that, that you know, the, the tone and the message and the disunity merely invites uh, a potential provocation by Putin? You know, NATO's been through many, many tough times, things that could really have broken it apart on numerous occasions in the past. The French leaving the military structures back in the 
1960s, the Suez crisis before that, the Iraq war actually really put some fissures into the alliance. And what's always happened is that the greater cause has always won through in the end. So there are non-traditional approaches, but they are the non-traditional approaches of democratic nations. And while we can have those, if you like, that discord between allies, but still be able to get together and come around to signing a communique as powerful as the one that has just been signed in Brussels at the 28 NATO summit, I think, frankly, that shows the strength of the alliance. We don't all agree. We do have different approaches and we do have different defence and security priorities. But at the end of the day, when the chips are down, alliances like NATO are rock solid. And you're not concerned at all about the meeting, as so many are, between the president and, and Putin? Of, co of course I'm concerned. There is great concern amongst those of the insiders in NATO headquarters that something inadvertently will be given away. But let's wait and see, because um, I am absolutely convinced that President Trump will have been very carefully briefed about the consequences of making or taking undertakings like that. And so let's see what happens and react to it afterwards. Do you think that, that um, there are some in the administration who've said that the purpose of the alliance is actually defense spending? How do you respond to that? How important is the 2% is unity more important? You know, where does that, you know, or, or is how that money is spent more important than necessarily the 2%? What's the right way for us to think about it? As somebody like you, who dealt with everybody in order to corral and, and try to get the most efficient spending and investment and thinking from the alliance? Well, do you know, I actually think the pressure that has been put on allies to increase defense spending at the end of the day is useful for the Alliance. Our defence planning process, it is well known, shows up a number of critical capability shortfalls for the Alliance and we need to be able together to plug those gaps. And if indeed a fairly bellicose approach to increasing defence spending has worked in some regard, then maybe that's been helpful. It's a question of balance and just keeping the tone right and not allowing that to ever break the Alliance apart. What I would say is I would never, ever want to see it being conditional on a defence spending number that Article 5 would come into play. If and when Article 5 is necessary, we will all stand together. And it should not be if you have paid your dues on that particular day. People have been through difficult economic times of late and are taking their own steps to solve the financial deficit that they found themselves in. That all NATO allies have stopped decreasing defence spending and the path is on the up and that we have an undertaking to achieve 2% by 2024, I think it's a positive sign. Um, one last question. Um, Tom Neal uh, was a legendary Battle of Britain ace. Um, you knew him well, I knew him. Uh, he is one of the most uh, amazing people I've ever met in terms of his humility, even yeah. as somebody who um, was in the Battle of Britain through it all, flying uh, hurricanes. Uh, he recently uh, passed away, and you, you can't look at a hurricane flying over this historic airfield without thinking of him. Um, tell us, you know, from the standpoint of, of an airman as proud as you are to have worn the RAF uniform, you know, you told me the most emotional thing you ever did wearing your uniform was flying a Spitfire. Well, um, you know, tell me what, tell us all what Tom Neal meant 
meant as a man, meant as a leader, and meant to the RAF on its centenary year. Privilege to have been able to speak to Tom about his experiences in World War II, particularly as a Spitfire pilot in the Battle of Britain. And you already used the really key word when you're describing Tom. That was incredible humility, this incredible, this incredible way he had of being self-effacing and almost dismissive about the incredible danger he must have faced and the fear that actually every human being would have felt when engaged in a combat as visceral as that. And he was a genuinely kind, caring man who sacrificed all that, all his lifestyle to go and fight for his country. I have, a, of course, another relationship with John and that uh, with Tom in that he was the commanding officer during his Air Force career of number 41 squadron, number 41 F squadron, that F being earned by those squadrons that had a role in the Battle of Britain. And um, I met him when I was OC 41 some years later. He was just a great guy to meet, such a privilege to be able to introduce him to my junior pilots and to just share some of those stories. I mean, there was the tales of Daring Do he would just sometimes talk about some of the emotional aspects of flying. You will have read Jeffrey Wellham's book, First Light. He, again, is one of these people who can talk about the emotion quite openly. And I think it's just a very special privilege to have known a man of that caliber. He's a great loss to our country, to the Royal Air Force. Uh, his history, though, is rock solid. Chris, thanks very, very much for that. Um, and he was also so candid about the horrors of it, that it wasn't just the gallantry of it, but, but in the end of the day that, you know, folks think about it, it's in the sky, but the brutality of, of aerial warfare then. Retired Royal Air Force Air Marshal, Sir Christopher Harper. Sir, it's always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Best to you and Jan, and looking forward to seeing you soon. Nice to see you, Vargo. Thanks very much indeed.